0: Well, good morning, guys. That's what I like to hear. That warms my heart. Um, Before I pray and we jump in this lesson, uh, welcome, first of all. As you guys know, as Ken announced, we're in this uh, Flawed Yet Faithful series. For those of you all that were here last week... You know that we're going over the life of the great prophet Elijah, and specifically we're looking at three chapters, uh, or have been, in 1 Kings. Today we're going to focus on chapter 19, which I personally believe is a gift from God. I I, I see this chapter, and it it really does encourage me, and we'll get into that in a second. We need encouragement. Um, Let me bring up something that some of you may know by personal experience, and some of you may not quite yet understand Christians struggle with depression. Do you know that that's possible? Christians struggle with depression. They struggle with disappointment, discouragement, despondency. Uh, it's a fact. Um, all too often I forget that. Uh, and I, I just want to share a personal story. Uh, one, of my, one of my good friends, uh, uh, not long ago, a brother in Christ, uh, tried to take his own life um, and he, he left the note uh, for me to find. And uh, uh, luckily, praise God, he's alive today and God miraculously saved him from that. Um, but this note, I, I, I can't get it out of my head, uh, some of the language that he, he wrote in here. He said, for instance, nothing has changed from a year ago. Uh, I've never been able to take care of things. I'm sorry for the pain my death will cause. I'm sorry for the mess of my life to be cleaned up. I wish there was something more to say. Um, Guys, that haunts me. Uh, because this guy is a is a professing believer and, 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 and praise God that he's on a on a path to re- restoration and recovery, but it just it it, it shows a, a distortion of perspective of God of himself and of his circum of his circumstances and that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, but first, let me open us up in prayer and then we'll we'll jump in. Father God, uh, I thank you for this time. I thank you for how you've prepared my heart to deliver this message by teaching me these lessons from the life of Elijah. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would prepare the hearts of these men to receive this truth found in in 1 Kings 19 as a gift from you, that it would be not only an encouragement to them, but it would uh, just just saturate their, their hearts and their minds and would spill out into the lives of others that struggle with these problems. God, we lift up this time and we pray all this for your glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Uh, well guys, we're going to go over three things and I'm going to tie it up with some application. We're going to talk a little bit of a recap on on Elijah running after he falls from the, from the phenomenal epic uh, battle with the prophets on Mount Carmel. And we're going to look at his, his running away. Then I'm going to bring you through and we're going to look at the process that God takes Elijah through to restore him personally in a couple different ways, and then we're going to look at how God recommissions him to the ministry field and continues to use him for the rest of his life in big ways. And then we'll, we'll wrap it up with some uh, some application. But before we go to our first discussion, let me just recap. And if you've got your Bibles, uh, you can follow along. It's in 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 right now. And for, for just four verses, these are powerful. These are uh, extremely impactful. Uh, they were for me. It, it wraps up really, at first it shows us what were the circumstances in Israel at the time. That frames this, the, the, this context in which Elijah found himself in after Mount Carmel, after this phenomenal victory. Victory on Mount Carmel, this phenomenal display of God's glory and might. Uh, At some point after that success, Elijah found himself, as you all remember, at the end of last week, he girded himself and the hand of the Lord was on him and he ran the entire distance to Jezreel, which is the town in which King Ahab and Queen Jezebel had their palace in in, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. He was so excited to get there that he actually passed the chariot of King Ahab on the way and beat him that 17-mile run back. And, and I can't help but to think that he raced there because he had some expectations for what he was going to find when he got there and, and how King Ahab was going to respond to God's display of his might and his glory and, and what that would mean for Jezebel, that she would be discouraged, that she would become uh, defeated, that she would even maybe be uh, uh, executed or sent back to uh, the Phoenicians that she came from north of Israel. So he gets there and at some point, unfortunately, I believe his circumstances began to influence his expectations. And we do that too. Uh, he looked around, he thought, surely God's, God's brought the nation of Israel back to repentance and we're going to clean this deal up. But when he got there, unfortunately his expectations were unmet and those created disappointment in his life. Uh, Ahab seemed relatively unaffected, Jezebel seemed unaffected, Um, Ahab talked about what Elijah did, how Elijah killed her prophets, how Elijah embarrassed her, Uh, but he didn't say anything about Yahweh, he didn't focus on God, he was focused on, on, on Elijah. Jezebel was also focused on Elijah, she focused her hatred and her anger against Elijah, uh, and really, Elijah, from that standpoint, saw no difference. There was no shift in the power uh, uh, of the royal family and in, in this paganism, this idolatry that they had brought into Israel. And uh, that disappointment opened the door to doubt and despair. Those are your blanks, doubt and despair. And, and, and really, um, Jezebel threatens Elijah. She doesn't go send assassins to kill him right away. But she sends a, a death threat along with a messenger and says, I'm going to kill you, and, and, and with that doubt and despair having taken its toll, Elijah runs for his life. Uh, this flight from Jezreel is pretty astounding. He went 17 miles to see the reaction on Jezebel's face and, and ran with the hand of God on him. Then in his own strength, he ran with his servant 100 miles or so due south from Jezreel. He passed the southern border of Israel. He passed through the area of Jerusalem, Bethlehem. He he even got to the southernmost town in the southern kingdom, which is Judah, the southernmost town, Beersheba, and there he left his servant. Um, Why did he run? Well, the reason for running, uh, what we do know is that God did not lead him away from Israel, okay? This was something that Elijah decided to do on his own effort. Uh, it, it, maybe it's because he feared. Maybe he, he got this death threat from this powerful, evil, uh, pagan, Gentile queen over Israel and thought, man, she can make good on this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of here. I'm, I'm fearing for my life. And, and in fact, the, uh, it actually, the Hebrew reads, he ran for his soul, literally, his soul. Soul, uh, or he could have just seen the circumstances and been disappointed and, and been discouraged. Either way, God didn't lead him out of Israel. And either way, there's no scriptural evidence that he prayed. And this is, this is Elijah that spent so much time on his knees in prayer to God in the previous two chapters. He relied, he depended on God for direction, for, for strength, for all these different things. And we get no account. In four verses, he goes from being in Jezreel, excited to see the look on her face, to being in the southernmost city of the southern kingdom, leaving a servant there and going in the wilderness by himself. Uh, God did not lead him there, uh, nor did he ask for God's direction. Uh, What a huge contrast that is from from last week. The route, or or route, I I I really don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, The the route, the path of escape, let's call it that. Uh, Beersheba, like I said, is a hundred miles south, Okay. Uh, basically, if I ran to Temple you know or, or Waco or something that 's kind of what we 're talking about here. He leaves his servant in Beersheba, essentially isolating himself. I know none of you guys do that, uh, but but he isolated himself and went a full day 's journey into the wilderness so not only like I said, is he beyond the southern border of israel he 's beyond the southern border of Judah at this point, the southern kingdom, so he 's way out of his, out of the zone that God called him to. The reality of this situation is that God is still with Elijah. No matter the fact that he isolated himself from people, no matter the fact that he's 100 miles south of where he's supposed to be, God is still with him. And I love this uh, this quote from from Psalm 139. And you guys. Y'all will know this when when I get to it here. But Psalm 139 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. I, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Um, that's where we're at. God is still with him, and God still cares for him. God still seeks relationship with Elijah. He doesn't say, I'm done with you. You, 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 you bolt you know, like Paul said to John Mark when he bolted from the, the ministry scene, he said, I'm done. He's not going back out on the road with us. But God still cares about Elijah, and God is still sovereign. God still is the sovereign ruler of the world at this point. Nothing slipped past him. It's not like he was focused on Jezebel. He's like, what? Where, where, where'd he go? He's 100 miles south outside of Beersheba. What happened? God has allowed and, and even preordained all these things to happen. But even so, even that's the reality, we find Elijah under a broom tree, a day's journey south of Beersheba, a broom tree. It's, it's this scrappy uh, desert shrub tree that grows about 10 or 12 feet, provides meager shade. Uh, it's pathetic. It's a pathetic place. And, and this is where we find Elijah. Elijah feels frustrated. He's lacking in perseverance. He, he says in his prayer, he says, "It is enough." Basically he says, "I can't take this anymore." I'm done. He 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 feels hopeless. Uh his words are, Now O Lord, take my life. I, I'm done with it. I and I'm ready for it to be over. Um and this isn't like the Apostle Paul in the New Testament where we hear that Apostle Paul saying, I'm ready for you to rapture me at any time, God. I'm ready to go, you know. Paul's not saying that he's not also ready to spend the rest of his life suffering for the cause of the gospel down on earth. This is more in the line of Job, Jonah, the prophet Jeremiah. It's like anyone with a J in, the, in, their, in their name at the beginning in the Old Testament at some point, ask for God to take their life. Um, but I think I put the scripture references in there. Finally, Elijah feels unsuccessful. And this should resonate with us as men because we define so much of our lives based on success or what we perceive to be success. He says, for I am not better than my fathers. Basically, he says, I'm a complete failure as a prophet. I'm no better than these, these men that came before me to, to keep out this idolatrous uh, influence and this paganism from the, the nation of Israel. He lacks a healthy perspective of himself and of God and of his circumstances. Uh, Let me just put a note here. We should gauge our success by obedience to God's will. This is a little freebie. It's not in the application section, but gauge your success by how obedient you are to God's will. When God calls you to something... And you, in faith, step out and and, and do that thing by his strength, leaning on God in the yoke with Christ. That's success. Leave the results to God. In fact, he says we're to be soldiers in God's army, but the victory is the Lord's. We're to plant. We're to water. we're, We're to reap. But growth is the Lord's. The results belong to him. He takes responsibility for those. So hopefully this, these these passages, the life of Elijah, is resonating with you. And 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 honestly, if you're anything like me, the more you read them, the more you'll realize just how many areas of your life uh, you're you're running, you're on the run, uh, either away from what God's called us to, or towards something that maybe looks good but isn't isn't what God has for us. Um, Guys, we want to go ahead and jump into restoration and recommissioning. And this is the exciting part for me. This is the part that tells me there's hope. Uh, So hopefully this will be an encouragement to you too. Uh, In in 1 Kings chapter 19, in verses 5 through 14, in those nine verses, we see a pretty tremendous uh, uh, process of restoration. And really there's three components to it that I can find. Uh, First, God restores Elijah's strength. And this also applies to us, by the way. He 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 restores his perspective on himself and on God and circumstances, and he restores his his relationship with God. That's the big one, and we'll get to that in a second. But first he restores strength. Uh, Elijah just got done running a hundred miles in his own strength, night and day, with his servant, and then left his servant in Beersheba and went a full day's journey into the wilderness. This is through a land that had been ravaged by three and a half years of drought and famine. Not much to eat. There's not a bunch of producing crops that he can just walk through and pick up. Uh, so I imagine at this point, under the broom tree, Elijah is tired, exhausted, not only physically, but emotionally, psychologically exhausted. He is tired. He's hungry. And so what's the first thing God does? After this rant where he goes and says, uh, basically, I want to die, take my life. Does God step in? Does he rebuke him? Does he give him a big lecture about how he should be? Uh, No, he knows that he's not in the right frame of mind. He knows his perspective, Jack's. So he, he lets him do a funny thing. He lets him go to sleep. Uh, it's almost like letting your child cry himself to sleep. Um, I love this quote from Chaplain Bill, who is the chaplain over at Dallas Theological Seminary. And, and DTS students, need to they need to hear this. This is wisdom. Uh, he says, Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is to take a nap. Uh, and that, man, that... I can't tell you how true that's been in my experience. Um, but but another thing he provides—he he provides sleep three different times in these verses in just a short amount of time. But he also provides sustenance. God provides food and water. He—he he, the basic necessities of life. God steps in and miraculously provides. He—he he sends the angel of the Lord to twice wake up Elijah and say, "Get up and eat." And all of a sudden, here's this miraculous uh, warm cakes of bread on hot coals and jars of water. And the beauty of this is these warm cakes of bread, these jars of water, are reminiscent of the provision that God gave him through the widow at Zarephath earlier in the, in the last chapter. And and, and that's, that's huge because it's a reminder that, hey, I got you. I got you. I'm going to provide for you. And uh, after these two rounds... We don't get any mention that Elijah is either surprised by this or appreciative. Uh, and, you know, our our experience reflects that, too. Sometimes we just take it for granted. Okay, God, you know, grumble, grumble, grumble. Uh, we'll take your provision. Also, God provides him shelter. Now, God didn't call him here, but by Elijah's own strength, his cover is a broom tree, which, again, provides meager cover. It's just a, it's just a desert shrub, essentially. And, and eventually, God is going to bring him from that broom tree to a cave, a cave, a mountain refuge on the very mountain of God. Uh, Horeb or Mount Sinai um, and we'll look at that in a second uh, so, so strength uh, provided through sleep, sustenance and shelter now he also restores Elijah's perspective and, and you guys know that sometimes you need to eat a meal you know, low blood sugar and maybe take a nap before you can really be addressed in, in terms of your perspective on things and I know that's true for me uh, basically God takes him on a journey now the astonishing thing about this journey from the broom tree Uh, 180, 200 miles south to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, uh, is that first of all, he goes in the strength of that second meal that God provides him for 40 days and 40 nights. Does that that ring a bell with anyone? 40 days and 40 nights without food or water that he goes and and God sustains him miraculously. Here's the curious thing, and I didn't pick this up the first four million times I read this verse, but then on the four millionth and one, I realized that 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 journey should have only taken about seven or eight days, with just normal single person walking that distance, you know. It, it, this the forty days and forty nights is peculiar because it either means one, God led him at a very very slow pace, basically about four and a half miles a day, a uh, snail's crawl. Uh, most people can walk twenty to thirty miles a day if they're if they're focused on it, but also. Uh, uh, it could mean that he was wandering in the in the wilderness. Now the astonishing thing about that is this is the same wilderness that seven centuries earlier the people of Israel wandered around in for 40 years being miraculously provided for by God's manna from heaven and, and miraculously provided uh, water from a flint rock. Uh, so, so this smacks of, of some other instances in Scripture. But uh, uh, some other examples, as you know, Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights without food or water on the mountain with God in Exodus. Jesus Christ himself spent 40 days and 40 nights without water when tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Um, when he does get to Mount Horeb, uh, God lets him sleep again and... Then he asked him this peculiar question, and it's kind of like, jump back to Genesis where Adam and Eve have sinned, and God says, where are you, Adam? Okay, <laughs> he knows where he is. He's in a bush hiding because he realized his nakedness, okay? He realized that he had sinned and lost his glory. And, um, and so God asks this question to Elijah, and it's for Elijah, it's not for God. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah. Does God ever just throw one of those across your bow? Kind of like, why don't you just sit and just take an assessment? What are you doing here? Uh, First of all, God had not called him out of Israel, okay? That was by his own effort. He was exhausted because he was relying on his own effort. Uh, Elijah belonged in Israel as the prophet to the Israelites. He belonged with the Israelites in Israel. Uh, Elijah could not have even arrived at Horeb without miraculous provision. So it's almost like God's saying, you couldn't even have gotten to this place had I not provided for you with food and water. You'd be dead under a broom tree. I didn't call you out of Israel. What are you doing here? Uh, So the the question runs deep. The answer is a little bit more shallow. Elijah, he he betrays his state of mind and, and, and complains. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, Basically, he's focused on himself. He has a distorted view of himself and his own accomplishments, his own worth to God as if God needed him or as if he's done a great job. God, I came through with my part. Where were you? He also says, for the sons of Israel, those dastardly fellows have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. Now, that's interesting because he forgets a couple details. Uh, First of all, he forgets the execution of 850 pagan prophets. at at the brook after Mount Carmel with he and the people putting them to death. He forgets to mention the awesome display on Mount Carmel of God bringing fire down from heaven and consuming the sacrifice, bringing water down from heaven and returning rain to the land. He forgets these things or he he decides to leave them out because he's got a skewed perspective. Instead of becoming the advocate for the people of Israel, he becomes their accuser. Um... And then you hear him say, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Poor God, all you've got left is me, that's it, and they want to kill me. It's useless, it's a fruitless effort. He forgets Obadiah, who's in charge of Ahab's palace, who hid a hundred prophets of Yahweh in a cave for three and a half years and fed them. And gave them water. He he and he knew he knew this from from chapter 18 verse 13. He forgets about God's past provision and protection at Kareth, at the at the at the brook, at the ravine, at Zarephath with the widow, and on Mount Carmel. He, he doesn't mention any of it. Um, finally, God restores our relationship, and, and this is big. Uh, God reveals His awesome power to Elijah. He doesn't answer Elijah with a with a, a three point sermon. He says. Behold, stand outside this cave, the Lord is passing by, and then, all of a sudden, He sends this wrenching wind and this and this uh, uh, earth shaking earthquake and this firestorm through the mountain these these awesome, terrible things, but it says something curious: The Lord was not in those things uh, it 's not a lecture it 's a demonstration of god 's power His, his, his might. Uh, whereas Elijah should have already known this. Um, God reveals himself, however, in a gentle whisper that comes after those things. And in Hebrew, it can be described as a brief sound of silence or a, a gentle blowing wind, a gentle whisper. God can reveal himself in spectacular ways. He can also reveal himself and does reveal himself in subtle ways. In fact, the spectacular and the miraculous is oftentimes the exception, even in Scripture. Does that strike you as odd? That God doesn't always show up with firestorms and earthquakes and things. And sometimes he operates outside your realm of understanding and your perspective. And he reminds Elijah of that fact. He reminds Elijah that he's always working. And sometimes he's working in the silence, in the aftermath, imperceptibly to, to Elijah. Um, Elijah experiences the presence of God. When he hears this this brief sound of silence, this gentle whisper, he wraps his face in his, in his cloak out of respect for God and his glory, and he stands in the entrance of the cave. And just like Moses, over 700 years earlier, he experiences God's presence. He... he, he he relishes this experience with with who God is in god 's very presence. Uh, he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. He responds to God. God shows up and says i 'm coming and He responds by going out and basically just being steeped in the in the presence and awesome. Uh, uh, presence of God, his his Lord, the Lord of hosts. So, guys, this whole restoration process hinges on who God is, not who Elijah is. He doesn't reach some deep inner place of peace that he finds in himself and realizes that he's important and that, you know, he's at peace with himself and his circumstances. It hinges on God's self revelation. And that's true in our lives too. After this, God recommissions the prophet. And this, we're going to look at this in, in part three. The curious part is, and, and I, I'm so, I, I want to make this into a formula, but God recommissions him even while Elijah still lacks a proper perspective. Does that strike you as odd? Uh, he he asks him the same question after this experience, and, and guess what? Elijah answers verbatim the same answer. He, his perspective still skewed, his attitude is still the same, um, he still is, is distorted in his thinking, but guess what? God sends him back anyway. And, and isn't that a great encouragement to us? That, that we don't have to get it perfect, that we don't have to, it's not about what we do or who we are. God will use us and he'll send us back into ministry. Uh, when he's prepared to do so, it's not according to who we are or what we do. It's, it's based on who he is and, and what he's already done. Um, and maybe the actual circumstances hadn't changed much. You know, Maybe, maybe uh, uh, Jezebel still wanted to kill him. But God said, that's okay, I got this covered. And he sends him back in anyway. God, in doing so, reveals his plan. He says, I want you to anoint three guys, okay? I want you to anoint Hazael, king over Aram of the Aramaeans, up in the northeast of Israel. They're enemies of Israel, and they're going to put the idolatrous uh, nation, the people of Israel who are idolatrous, he, they're going to put them to the sword, put them to death. Then I want you to anoint Jehu, king over Israel. He's going to sweep in after Ahab and his son, and he's going to put to death Ahab, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel and their entire family and all their descendants. He's going to wipe out with the sword. And then I want you to anoint Elisha as prophet in your place. He's going to replace you, Elijah, at some point when I, when I so choose. And in doing this, God's reminding the prophet, but he's, while he's reinstating the prophet, he's reminding him. He's reminding him that, guess what? You're not alone. I don't care what your answer was. I don't care that you say you're alone and everyone's out to get you. You're not alone. First of all, you're going to have a new assistant. He's going to be the best assistant you ever had. It's a lot like Ken and I's relationship. Um, but Elisha is going to have double your spirit and he's going to be incredible and he's going to do a great job. Not only that, but I myself, unbeknownst to you, have saved 7,000 other true worshipers of Yahweh in the nation, in the kingdom of Israel, and you don't even know it. You don't even have a clue. You're not alone. There's 7,000 others, not just the 100 prophets that I told you about. 7,000 that haven't bowed their knee to Baal or Asherah. And, And finally, he's saying... Uh, not finally but he says you're not going to be the one to finish the job how often do we get a job that God calls us to and we think that we're going to plant the seed water the seed raise up the crop and and reap the crop all in one fell swoop in our lifetime in our experience we're we're doers we're checklist people we want to check it off our list he wants to check off calling the nation of Israel to repentance and and true worship of Yahweh um, and it's just not going to happen he says Elisha's going to take over after you're gone and then people after that, I'm not ready to bring this to a conclusion yet. And he won't be until Jesus Christ himself comes to finish that work. Um, well, he also, he, Elijah goes on, this is the end of it. He goes on to have a blessed ministry. Basically, Elijah goes on to uh, call fire from heaven on, on not one but two occasions. He, he he parts the Jordan River and walks across on dry land, a lot like Moses did, um, uh, and then finally, as a lot of you guys know, he's taken up to heaven in fiery chariots. Fiery chariots come down and, and, and take him bodily. He doesn't die bodily up to heaven. And, and he shares that um, with two other men, Enoch from Genesis and Jesus Christ himself, who's lifted his resurrected body bodily into heaven. So that's the end of his ministry. But let's move on to some application. I want to hit four points, and, and this is... Uh, This chapter, like I said at the beginning, is a gift from God to us, Uh, the whole scripture is, but particularly this gives us an insight into the life of someone who we would otherwise think is a superman, but but basically God is showing us that he's a man just like us, that Elijah has a nature just like ours, and, and that's an encouragement to us. So, first point of application, would you believe me if I told you that our physical condition affects our entire being? You guys feel that sometimes? Uh, Our physical condition affects our mental state, our our emotional state, our spiritual state. Uh, We see this in the life of Elijah, but when we become exhausted, it's usually because of self-effort in our yoke. We we, we take on burdens. We we put on burdens that aren't ours to carry, and then we strain under the the burdens, under these yokes that we take on ourselves. We become exhausted. Do you ever find yourself... Praying for multiplied sleep more than three or four nights a week. You know what I'm talking about? I was doing that last night. God, please multiply my sleep so I feel rested tomorrow. If you're doing that like four or five plus times a week, you might have a problem uh, that needs to be addressed. But isn't it funny that after the Industrial Revolution which gave us so many wonderful devices and the technological revolution, which gave us so many life altering devices and technologies, we work more and we sleep less. God bless fluorescent lighting, right? Um, We work more and we sleep less. We sometimes find ourselves consumed by activities and involvement. And you know what, This this affects us, it affects our families. Guys, has your busy work schedule ever impacted your family or your marriage? I'm not going to make you raise your hands, okay, but it certainly has affected mine. So here's a question. Are you over-involved? And a better way to put that is, has God called you to do and be involved in all the things you're involved in? If not, ask him to teach you the art of pruning um, so that the berries that do stay on get bigger and sweeter and you're not run ragged. Um, uh, God promises rest from our weariness in his yoke. And, and, and guys, I'm this is probably my favorite verse in scripture right now. It's Matthew 11:28 through 30. Uh, you know it, I'm going to read it. Come to me. This is Jesus Christ saying this, "Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden." So if you know anyone like that, you should refer this to him. Uh, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you believe that? Uh, When we believe that, our lives, I mean, it's an amazing experience to take on the yoke with Christ, to recognize that we're in a yoke with Christ and let him pull. Uh, It doesn't mean life will be easier, but it certainly gives us rest for our souls. Second point of application, and you dads, you you can hone in on this. Our Heavenly Father allows his children to fail. Uh... It's true. Uh, sometimes we want the shortest road. The shortest road is not always the best because we end up missing very valuable, important lessons along the way. When the Israelites were cruising around wilderness for 40 years, they were learning a lesson of walking by faith, not by sight. When we take the shortest road, when we want the quick fix, when we want the easy answer, God loves us more than that. He loves us enough to let us go through these times of failure and these times of, of being under broom trees. Um, God uses our circumstances to humble us and to test our hearts, to see what's in them. He knows what's in them. It's to show us. He, he uses these circumstances to humble us and test our hearts. Look at Deuteronomy 8. It's got some amazing verses about this, but he does that out of love. Uh, in our pride, we forget God. God. But in our humility, we remember God and we learn from him. That's when we learn from Christ in the yoke. Because he is gentle and humble of heart. Uh, God's discipline, and get this, God's discipline confirms our adoption as sons of our Heavenly Father. And there's multiple scripture verses to back that up. But when he disciplines you, it's not punishment. In Christ, you're not punished. You're disciplined because he wants what's best for us. And he knows what that is. Guys, third application, our lives are not immune to the problem of depression. Uh, even in the church, even with believers. And this was true for my friend I brought up at the beginning. But we struggle with depression. We struggle with with, with uh, disappointment, with with desperation. Uh, despondency there's a lot of d words out there that we struggle with but uh, but we do and and, and it's because we're misled by lies about ourself about our circumstances have you ever heard any of these lies I must be perfect it is easier to avoid problems than to face them you are only as good as what you do how often do you get that rubbed in your face as a man in this world you are only worthwhile if you're successful and I want to say by whose standard whose standard of success life should be easy life should be fair guess what it's not uh, all my problems are caused by sins or failures you turn into job's three buddies and all your problems are a result of your sin and failure uh second subpoint here is and this is huge don't suffer in isolation I know we're guys and we like to put up our 10-foot security fences in our backyard so no one can watch us throw the frisbee to the dog and we pull our, our blinds down. And, and we don't want anyone to peek into our lives because it shows weakness and, and it's, it's not something we just like to throw out there at dinner parties. But guys, don't suffer in isolation. That's what Elijah did. And, and, and it, it harmed him. It was harmful to him. Relationships are extremely important. And especially relationships in the church with brothers in Christ. Uh, God uses us to minister to one another. And in the New Testament, you've got all these one another verses. Love one another. Encourage one another. Guess what that happens in the context of relationships? If the only relationships you have with men in Christ is here on Wednesday morning for an hour... You don't pray about that. You need relationships. Not only that, but we need honesty and transparency in our relationships. We need to be open and transparent with each other because then it becomes a blessing for others. Every time I've ever shared struggles or weaknesses that I've been dealing with, it's always God's shown me how it's blessed other people to watch me go through that and to to share with them what God's teaching me. Elijah's story should be an encouragement to us. Okay. Our testimonies should be an encouragement to each other. Are you sharing your testimonies? Are you sharing what God's teaching you? Or are you pulling the blinds down, putting up the security fence, coming to church on Sunday, straightening your tie and acting perfect? Are you putting on the mask that Ken talked about back at the beginning of this series? Hey, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Hey, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. Fine. Fine as fine can be. Um, that's, I find myself saying that. It's not the case. It's just, I know that you don't want to spend the next two hours gulping down lattes and talking about my problems. Um, but anyway, guys, I say that jokingly. We need to be uh, uh, encouragement to one another. And finally, and I'll, I'll end it with this, our relationship with God is the only path to restoration and renewal. If you're seeking it anywhere else, and, and anywhere else, if, if you're seeking it, uh, you know, restoration, renewal, uh, from a a cold schooner, a beer on the patio of, of Railhead after a long day of work, and that's what you go to to find restoration renewal. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying if you're making that an idol for restoration renewal, for, for refreshment, and you're not going to God himself in your relationship, you're missing out. It, 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 it's, it's empty. Um, we acknowledge our faith in a restored, the ultimate restored relationship that we have in Christ. Uh, we find hope in Jesus Christ, our hope is in God's promises fulfilled in Christ. Uh, we experience, the, finally, the love of God in Jesus Christ. Man, you're, you're depressed, you're discouraged. Go to your relationship with God. Watch as he reveals himself to you, his power, but also his subtle ways, his gentle processes of restoration. That comes from knowing him and seeking him out in worship and reading his word and in, in speaking with him in prayer. Guys, I want you to write something down next to this for faith, hope, and love. There's a couple places these show up, but write down Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 25, and just take a bite out of that sometime this week. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 25, and uh, let me read a quote, and then I'll close this in prayer. I like this quote, and it gets back to God. It says, before y'all start snapping the binders, I'll get this in. Uh, This reminds us that, other than being godly people of faith who are available to be used by God, other than that, it is never really who or what we are that counts. What really matters is who and what God is. Knowing who God is should strengthen our faith in him so that it affects what we are, what we say, and what we do it's not about us, who we are, what we've done, what we're going to do. It's about who God is. And when we remember that, we are restored, we're renewed, we're reconciled to him and to others. <clears throat> well, that's it. Let me close this in prayer and I'll let you guys get out of here. Father God, I thank you for this time. Um, Lord God, I praise you for who you are. And these men do too. Uh, and yet we, we can spend the rest of eternity finding out more about who you are and we will in Christ um, Lord I just pray that, that these truths from your word for, especially from chapter 19 of 1 Kings in the life of Elijah I pray that these would have a dramatic effect in the lives of these men and in my life and that, we would, that they would haunt us and we would constantly go back to them and be nourished and sustained by these words and, 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 and by our relationship with you Lord show us your love every single moment of every single day, that we would never lose sight of that and, and fall away to skewed and distorted perspectives of who you are uh, and, and who we are in our circumstances. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this. And we pray all this for your glory in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, your Son. Uh, amen. Thank you.